Well, hello, church. Hello. Want to welcome all of you here at Rock Island. Also want to greet those joining in online and all of our brothers and sisters at our Bettendorf campus. This is the final week of our Fearless series. And we spent the last three weeks exploring the lives of a few individuals from the book of Daniel to help us understand how to fear less in the complexity of our lives, especially when God doesn't remove that complexity. In a way, we're talking about how we live as holy people in unholy times. Now, that's not a new concept. It's actually something that even the missionary and church planter Paul talked about when he wrote to his young apprentice, Timothy. And he wrote these words. He said, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. God saved us. Look, when we believe in our heart and profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we're saved. But we're not just saved to be saved. We're saved with purpose. And God saves us and calls us to a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. We're called to live holy lives. And holiness is just another word for Christ-likeness. It's being like Jesus. And we're supposed to live that way even when the world around us is not. But that requires us to have the right posture. Not just right perspectives or right positions. Right posture. It's one of submission and dependence. Who we give authority to in our life and who we depend on matters. In fact, a number of weeks ago, we walked through the life of Moses in a series we called Game of Life. And in that conversation, we discussed a tension that we all live in. If you missed that series, you can go to heritageqc.com and you can find it under the media tab. But the concept was a tension that we live in between certainty and uncertainty. We all face this, a tension between certainty and uncertainty. And we can drift to the sides of this diagram and live independently from God, or we can do what he asks and calls us to, is to drive down in the middle and live in a place of dependence, where we have certainty amidst the uncertainty. Again, you can get the full teaching of this online in the Game of Life series. But this conversation has positioned us to have another conversation about authority. Primary authority. See, who we give primary authority to determines who we are and what we do. It determines our identity and our purpose. And every time we move primary authority in our life, we mess with our identity and our purpose. In fact, there's four specific areas that we can put our primary authority. One is with others. And this is where we live more like a people pleaser, kind of chasing the whims and wishes of others. We can give primary authority to God, and this is actually how God has designed it. In fact, he has positioned and empowered Jesus to administer that authority, to, to be the administrator of a relationship with God and the authority that comes with following in relationship to him. It positions us to live in submission to God. But we can also give primary authority to established authority or what we could call government. But most people, most of us have a tendency of giving ourselves primary authority. And then we parcel out that authority among the other three based on the circumstances. But this is problematic for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it asks the creator, God, to submit to us the creation. That shouldn't be. It also positions us to navigate the complexity of established authority and others on our own power and our own strength. And that's a lot of drama and that's a lot of complexity. But when we give God primary authority through Jesus, it positions us to submit and allows us to relate to others and relate to established authority in a way that still honors God. Yet every time we move primary authority from the divine, we put power and influence in places it was never intended to be. And that can be scary. <laughs> which is why we've been talking about how we can fear less. 
We're not talking about removing fear. We're talking about overcoming it. We're talking about doing what's right in the face of it. And that will always require a posture of dependent strength. Submitted to his authority, trusting and obeying in his strength. Because I, I know we don't have to look very far in the world to find things that are unsettling to us. To, to find things that lead us to worry or lead us to fear. Our nation is facing a very unique season with very unique challenges. There is disunity around the election, disunity around politics, disunity in legal shifts, disunity around racial tensions. It doesn't matter what your particular beliefs or convictions are. We can all acknowledge that our nation is facing a great complexity, and that complexity can, can cause us to step towards fear. But we can fear less. We just need to know how. So here's what I want to do as we start our time. I want to jump in the deep end. And that's not a pun to baptism. <laughs> I want to jump in the deep end. And I want to talk about how this concept plays out in real-time scenarios like the impending presidential election. And then I want to move to a very practical application for how we live out this concept as we end our time. So if you've got a note guide, I'd love for you to grab it. Grab your note guide. It's a helpful tool as we study God's Word. And let's hit the first fill-in today, which is that God doesn't take sides like we do. God doesn't take sides like we do. He doesn't take what? Sides. He doesn't take sides like we do, people. Look, we live here, but if we follow Jesus, our identity is in heaven. We live as citizens of the kingdom. Uh, this, this world is not our home. And we live in this really weird tension of being citizens of heaven while residing here on earth. But when we give God primary authority, we are, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, and therefore He chooses and He establishes our identity and our purpose, and He doesn't pick sides like we do. He doesn't take sides like we do. Listen, He is not a Democrat. He is not a Republican. He is not an Independent. And He is not even undecided. He is most decidedly in charge. The one who is in charge. And He doesn't take sides like we do. Take a look at what the disciple Peter, he's one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, what Peter said. Peter said, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. No favoritism. Say that with me. Say no. no. Favoritism. Excellent. God shows no favoritism in every nation. Every nation. Bettendorf, hop in on this too. Say every. every. Say nation. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Those who give him primary authority and depend on him. Those who let him define their identity and their purpose. This is the message of the good news for the people of Israel. That there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Look, if, if we want to have peace in the complexity of our day, it's only going to come through Jesus. Because he's Lord of all. In all the complexity, the only place we find peace is in Jesus. It's through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And again, God doesn't take sides like we do. He doesn't take sides. He doesn't pick and choose. He doesn't show favoritism. He, he loves equally. And forgives everyone who receives Jesus as Lord, who, who fears him and does what's right. And that's holy, reverent fear that we're talking about. Now here's where this gets a little bit sticky. When we are overly partisan, 
we can obscure our identity in Jesus Christ. When, when we pick sides, we can diminish our identity in Jesus. When, when we place our identity and our purpose with party alignment, we cloud the identity in Jesus in us because God doesn't take sides like we do. Now, I want to be clear before you misunderstand what I'm saying or before some of you decide to tune me out and stop listening. I am not challenging the appropriateness of political parties or saying it's wrong to affiliate with a party. I'm pushing on allegiance, on who has primary authority in our life, of who's determining our identity and our purpose. Because every time we align our identity and purpose with political parties and affiliations, we run the risk of moving primary authority and, and putting power and influence in places it was never intended to be. And that then can position us where we end up promoting sides rather than promoting Christ. Whenever we're overly partisan, we can lose our ability to be true reconcilers, to be ministers of the gospel of reconciliation. Who, that's who we're called to be. Ministers of the gospel of reconciliation. Consider this. Oswald Chambers once said it this way. He said, the gospel is not patriotic. It is irrespective of nations and of individuals. It is for the whole world. That's good. But it may make some of us who are highly patriotic a little uncomfortable. But hear me. I love this country. I served this country as an army officer. I've defended the freedoms that we all enjoy. Those freedoms have allowed me to get an education, to, to have a job, to have a family, to have community. It's, it's life and liberty. I love this country, but I do not love it more than him. The moment I do, I've moved authority. And that's always problematic. The gospel is irrespective of nations. Oswald Chambers is right. The gospel is not American, it's divine. Its power does not come from the authority of a great nation, but from the authority of a great savior. Freedom was not first an idea of our founding fathers. It was, it was the idea and concept of our heavenly father. And his love and his gospel is irrespective of nations and of individuals. It's for the whole world. And he doesn't take sides like we do. Now that may still feel a bit uncomfortable for some of you. But I want to invite you to think about it this way. That Jesus said people will know we are his disciples by our what? Love. Our love. That we will be known as his followers, his disciples, by how well we love. Not how well we vote. So that therefore then means that political unity is not as important as biblical unity. Political unity is not as important as biblical unity. Our unity in Jesus is more important than our unity in politics. Politics is focused on issues, big and small, important and unimportant. Biblical unity is focused on Jesus. That's something very different. We're called to be a people who pursue biblical unity. And we all know that, that politics has agenda. It's laden with agenda. It, it manipulates power. It seeks to influence in its assertions. It's kind of like the, the set traps. You set a trap for Daniel, and we're all surprised that they set a trap, but it's kind of a giveaway in their name. Set traps, set a trap. See what I did there? 
That was political. It, it was politics, not righteousness. Even, even the astrologers, the officials who ratted out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for not bowing down to the idol, that was politics, not righteousness. That, that was political, not even national. Here's one of the challenges we have. It's the way we look at and, and really talk about our country, our government, and our politics. See, we tend to talk about our country, our government, and our politics in a way where they're all grouped together. We call them the same, we call them equal. But they're not. They're different. Our country is our tribe. It's the largest community group we identify with out of our nation. It's, a, it's the people. The government is the administrating authority in that country. It's not the country. And politics? Politics is a whole other thing. When we group all these things together and call them the same, that's a problem. Because they're not. They're not equal. They're not the same. When we group them together, that's a problem. When we give them the wrong priority, that's a problem. And when we get them out of order, it's a problem. See, we can be one nation under God as long as we keep politics in its place. And we don't elevate politics to a place it shouldn't be. Look, we can, we can disagree on politics. It's probably inevitable at some point. But we can agree in the preeminence and authority of God and Jesus Christ. And we can be one nation under God according to our constitution. As long as we keep politics where it should be. Politics is administered by government. It is filled with great disunity. We will probably never all agree in political subjects. But helping people spend eternity with God is the most important issue. So we need to make sure when we engage in divisive conversations that those topics matter for eternity. That they're biblical and not political. The moment that we allow them to be politically based that they're just political and not biblical, we've moved authority. And that's problematic for everyone. Okay, I, I think I stirred it up enough to begin with. <laughs> Told you we were going to go deep. But let's actually now look at what Daniel does in the complexity of his day. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love for you to grab it and turn to Daniel chapter 9. We're in the Old Testament. If you find the book of Psalms and you start to work your way backwards, you'll end up in Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 9. We're starting with verse 1. And again, Daniel has lived for decades in exile, taken from his homeland, basically a slave. God worked and moved in all that complexity, and we've been able to learn. And we're picking up Daniel chapter 9, starting with verse 1. And I invite you to follow along as we read down through it. It was the first year of the reign of Darius, the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, who became king of the Babylonians. During the first year of his reign, Daniel learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah the prophet that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So listen, there's great complexity in Daniel's day. There's lots of tragedy. There's, there's, there are moments of triumph, but there's lots of hardship just like we experience in our day. But his response is what matters. So here's what happens. He said, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. I also wore rough burlap and sprinkled myself with ashes. So track this. After decades of living in complexity, complexity that God did not fully remove, Daniel still turns to God. He still turns to God. 
He was taken from his homeland, stripped of his identity, stripped of his language, his culture, made a slave. Yet in the midst of all that, Daniel still turned to God. He continued to keep primary authority with God. Continued to strive to be holy in unholy times. It's really quite extraordinary. See, after decades, the dude's in his, probably in his late 80s at this point, of experiencing complexity that God never removed, he still is looking to God. He is still using his platform to influence people toward God. He's not complaining, he's not condemning, but he's loving. He's loving God, he's loving others, and he's giving appropriate respect to established authority. It's remarkable. But one of the main reasons he could do that all those years is that Daniel navigated the complexity of his life with prayer. He did it early on around the the food issue. He did it in the lion's den. He had a regular habit of prayer, and that's important because how we handle prayer reveals how we handle authority. How we handle prayer reveals how we handle authority. How we pray, when we pray, and what we pray for reveals where we actually place authority, where we place dependence, and where we put our trust. And one really easy way to assess where you place primary authority in your life is to assess your private prayer life. To look at how you pray, when you pray, what you pray for. If you pray only in crisis... God does not have primary authority in your life. If you say you trust God, but you never engage in prayer, he does not have primary authority in your life. How we handle prayer reveals how we handle authority. So what I want to do is take a look at how Daniel prayed, because in chapter 9, he prays this extended prayer for the nation. It's a beautiful prayer that connects to things in our world as well. And so I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to read through this section of Scripture in excerpts. And I want to invite you to sit back and, and, and underline, circle, highlight the things that the Spirit just shows you in the Word of God. Use that observe, interpret, apply process that we've talked about. But also consider using that acronym, CHAT, we talked about last week when it comes to praying, that we confess, honor, ask, and thank Look at how Daniel's walking through that reality in his prayer. But most importantly, as I read down through this, I want to encourage you to think in light of realities for us today. Because the parallels in this scripture are striking. So I'm going to start reading these excerpts, starting with verse 4. We'll walk down through, and that'll position us to head into the last part of our time together today. Oh Lord, you are great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands. Those who give you primary authority. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. Look, look, right at the very beginning, you see confession and honor in that. He's honoring and confessing. He continues on from there. Lord, you are in the right, but as you see, our faces are covered with shame. This is true of all of us, including the people of Judah and Jerusalem and and all Israel scattered near and far, wherever you have driven us because of our disloyalty to you. Oh Lord, we and our kings and princes and ancestors and presidents and representatives and senators and governors are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. Are you tracking the parallel? 
but, but the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. And even though we have rebelled against him, we, we have not obeyed the Lord our God, for we have not followed the instructions he gave us through his servants, the prophets. And I'm going to jump to verse 15 if you're tracking in the note guide or in your scriptures. O Lord our God, you brought lasting honor to your name by rescuing your people from Egypt in a great display of power. But we have sinned and are full of wickedness. In view of all your faithful mercies, Lord, please turn your furious anger away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. All the neighboring nations mock Jerusalem. You realize that there are nations of this world who mock our nation today because of some of the things we're experiencing? There's clear parallels to what Daniel was experiencing and what we're facing today. Nations mock Jerusalem and your people because of our sins and the sins of our ancestors. Oh, our God, hear your servant's prayer. Listen as I plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on your desolate sanctuary. Oh, my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive Oh, Lord, listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay. Oh, my God, for your people and your city bear your name. This is a powerful prayer of repentance and humility, of acknowledging primary authority in the complexity of his day. This is a guy who lived in a nation that did not follow God, in the complexity that God did not remove in his world, yet he continued to turn back to God. God honored that faithfulness every time and rewarded favor to Daniel, but Daniel didn't let that favor lead to living independently. He continued to live in a posture of submission to God. And this is honestly, this is a prayer you and I could pray if we just change a few pronouns and a couple of locations. This prayer fits into the dynamic of our world today and what we're facing and I encourage you to consider doing that. But what are we going to do with this today? What does this mean in our so what reality in our study? How does this apply to our context? We're not in exile, but we are positioned as a people with a need to know how to live as holy people in an unholy time. So I've got really good news for you. I just want to give you two things that break through that cloudiness, that kind of come as relief to us and position us to navigate that complexity, giving God authority and keeping dependence where it is, even though he may not remove the complexity in front of us. Just two things, and they change everything. Change everything. The first one actually connects to that, and it's that prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Say that with me. Prayer changes things. Boom. It's true. It changes things. It's been said that, that prayer isn't the thing that equips us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. That's true. It's the battle. It changes things. But it also changes us. And it's a demonstration of dependent strength that we trust in Him in all the complexity that we face when we engage in prayer. Look, I said, I love our country. But my heart breaks for what's not right in it, for what's broken, for what's not God-honoring but I'm not going to abandon it. In some ways, I feel like how I feel when a family member is choosing poorly. When family members make mistakes and they choose wrong things and I want to see something different, but they keep choosing poorly and I still want to see them change. I feel very similarly because they, even though they're choosing poorly, they're, they're still my family. I'm not going to disown them. The same way I feel about our nation. 
I wish our nation was making different choices. Our government was making different choices. But I'm not going to abandon it. I'm going to engage in the reality that prayer changes things. That I can bring to bear the power of a holy God in all that complexity. And he can work and move in ways that I'm not able. But that requires dependent strength. That requires prayer. And if you're not praying for the leaders of our nation... Listen, you are not rightly positioned with the, with the right posture, the right heart, the right platform to criticize them. If you're not praying, you're not positioned rightly. One of the other things that Paul said to Timothy was to pray for those in authority. Do that. Prayer changes things. No matter how God orchestrates the complexity of our lives, our duty is to pray. And prayer changes things. And one of the coolest things that prayer changes is us. It's the starting point of giving God primary authority. Prayer actually changes our relationship and dynamic with God and our, and our destiny for eternity. In a prayer conversation with God where we ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior, it changes our eternal destiny. Prayer changes things. And if you've never had a conversation with God where you ask Jesus to have authority in your life so that you can have relationship with God as you give Him primary authority, I want to encourage you to do that today. On the back of the note guide are three simple steps and an example prayer. This, this is the kind of prayer that changes you, makes you new, transforms you, allows you to live in the freedom that Jesus came for. We can be free to live through this prayer. And I encourage you to have that conversation today. We're, we're seeing and hearing the testimonies around the baptism celebration of God doing this in the lives of people. They're now free to live. And that prayer, or prayers like it, where we position God with authority through Jesus Christ, changes who we are. And I encourage you to have that conversation before you leave today, if you've never had it. Because if you haven't had it, God doesn't have primary authority in your life. You may want it, but He doesn't have it yet. Prayer changes things. So finally, we're going to move to the last fill-in, and I think this one alleviates a ton of pressure that we may be feeling as we approach Tuesday. And it's simply the reality that how we pray is more important than how we vote. How we pray is more important than how we vote, people. Can I get an amen? amen? There we go. Listen, listen, that's a relief. Our hope is not in a president or in a government. Our hope is in God, the God of all hope. So how we pray is more important than how we vote. Now, I'm not saying voting is not important. I'm saying prayer is more important. And if you're relying on news media or political parties or summary comparisons or recommendations of experts and you're not engaging in a pursuit of a holy God in prayer, for wisdom and leading, you are already a step behind in the complexity. Because how we pray is more important than how we vote. Now, can I tell you a secret? Something you may not know. You ready for this? There is no perfect candidate. I don't know, maybe you haven't heard much information about it or anything at all. There is no perfect candidate. There's also no perfect government. There's no perfect nation. There's no perfect system and there's no perfect party. There's only one who is perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. And our hope, our hope is in him. So voting is always second to praying. Praying leads us to an ability to vote rightly, not the other way around. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to pray. I want you to vote for who you think is most, wor most worthy, and then I want you to get back to praying. Get back to praying. Because prayer changes things. And how we pray is more important than how we vote. But if prayer is a last resort rather than a first response in your life, 
got to tell you, you've already moved with primary authority. If it's a last resort rather than a first response, God doesn't have primary authority in your life. If, if you're relying on voting in an election to resolve the complexity of our lives, the complexity in our nation, you have already moved primary authority. Either you've given it to God or given it to government or you've given it to others or just keeping it yourself. But it's not resting with God if your hope is in, a, in an election. Again, I want to affirm that voting is one of the greatest privileges of our freedom. But I acknowledge that this year feels a bit more complex than other years. So I want to share my best advice for voting. The advice that I have for everyone who asks me and talks to me, I want to share it with you. And it comes from a quote from a previous election season. And this may actually be helpful as you prepare to vote on Tuesday. Here's the advice. I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and advised them, number one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy. Number two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And number three, to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. John Wesley, October 6th, 1774. 242-year-old advice, and it's good. Good counsel. This is how I'm approaching Tuesday. It's how I encourage you to approach Tuesday. With a posture of dependence, giving God primary authority. How we pray is more important than how we vote. And if our hope is in an election outcome, we've moved that primary authority already. We're supposed to be known by our love, how we love God, how well we love others, how well we love those who do not yet know him. So do your duty and vote in the manner I just described. Then move on. Get back to what's most important. Jesus will still be on the throne come Wednesday, regardless of who's elected. And he's going to ask you, He's going to ask you what you did with his love and his sacrifice and his gospel, gospel before he ever asks you what you did with your vote. So pray, vote, and get back to praying. No matter what happens on Tuesday, we can fear less because Jesus will still be on the throne. He is King of kings and he is Lord of lords. In the next few weeks, we're going to take this concept of dependence and authority and talk about how we live it out in our daily lives at the next level as we roll into our global outreach emphasis, which is our missional emphasis for the year. You're not going to want to miss the next two weeks as we go to the next level in this conversation. But I can think of no better way to end our fearless journey and our study through the book of Daniel than to do as Daniel did and pray for our nation. So I want to invite all of you, Bettendorf included, those joining in online, to join me in whatever prayer posture you deem comfortable. If you want to stand and raise your hands, you can do that. If you want to just bow in your seat forward, you can do that. If you want to turn around in your seat and kneel into your seat, go for it. If you want to move to some other part of the room that you're in and and kneel down or lay out prostrate on the floor before the Father, I want to encourage you to do that. If you're joining in online, turn around and kneel into your couch. If you're listening online as you drive, please don't close your eyes. (laughs) But do join in. Because it's more important, how we we pray is more important than how we vote. So we're going to pray. We're going to turn 
and plead to God in prayer for our nation. So I invite you to join me. There's going to be a couple moments where I'm going to allow you to pray in silence around specific areas, but I'm going to lead us through a time of prayer for our nation. There's no better way to end this fearless journey than that. So would you join me as I pray? Oh Lord, you are a great and awesome God. You always fulfill your covenant and keep your promises of unfailing love to those who love you and obey your commands, who give you primary authority, who place our dependence on you. But we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. But yet, Father, you say that if your people who are called by your name will humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways, that, that you will hear from heaven. You will forgive their sin and, and you will begin to heal their land. So, Father, in these moments, I pray that you would do exactly that as we submit ourselves to you. In fact, in the next few moments of silence, Lord, may we offer personal prayers of confession areas of sin in our life, places we've moved primary authority, places we've rebelled and not honored you. So may we offer those silently where we're each at. Father, having acknowledged our own personal sin, I want to turn our hearts in this prayer time to corporate realities, corporate sin, and sins of our nation. Oh, Lord, we and our kings and princes and ancestors, our, our leadership, our administrators, are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. But you, Lord, are our God, and you are merciful and forgiving. So, Father, I pray you would move in our nation. I pray that you would show grace and mercy, that you would be forgiving, that you would heal our land, Lord, that you would move by your spirit, that there would be a, a turning back to you. Lord, I want to pray specifically. We want to pray specifically for, for our leadership, Lord, for those who are leaders and those who will be leaders. So even now in these moments of quiet, we pray for leaders who are and leaders who will be. Father, may we continue to pray for leaders. We submit to them out of reverence for you, not because they're perfect, not because they do everything right, but because you have called us to submit to established authority. We do it out of reverence for you, Lord. And I ask in the complexity of our world, O oh Lord and my God, that you would hear our prayer. You would listen as we plead. For your own sake, Lord, smile again on our nation. Oh my God, lean down and listen to us. Open your eyes and see our despair. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act for your own sake. Do not delay. Oh, my God, for we, your people, bear your name. 
But in all that complexity, God, our hope is not in government. Our hope is not in kings and princes. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to respond to fear with courage in your name. You're the one who saves. You're the one who redeems. You're the one who sets free, that positions us to be free to live. We see that and we celebrate that in the testimonies and the witnessing of baptism today. God, I love that you give life, that you make us new and you set us free so we are free to live. May you bind us together in unity as a nation. Bind us together in unity as a church. May people know us and know you by our love, Lord, by our love. May we be fearless in the complexity. May we fear less and less and less as we keep our hope in you, for you will not abandon us. You are faithful and you are good, and we trust in you and you alone. So, Father, as we wrap up this time, we give you again, acknowledge primary authority rests with you. We ask you to work and move in us in all the complexity of relationships with others and relationship with established authority as we submit to you, fully dependent upon you, because you alone are God and King. And your son, Jesus, is a risen Lord. And in him we have hope. We have expectancy. We ask you to move. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. And everybody said, amen.